Kelly and I want to thank you for um, trusting the Cisco's by and allowing us to uh, come and speak to you, though you don't know us. I always think a pastor has about, you know, he has three lives. He can make three major mistakes before he, he's asked to, to move on. I'm not sure how many lives you have left, Dad, but I'm sure I hope I don't cost you one. So uh, Kelly's going to start by uh, reading some scriptures for us, and uh, that's a good way to start, so you probably won't lose your life. So let's just, uh, let's just hear from the Lord as Kelly reads these scriptures. Mm-hmm. Would you like to stand with me and honor God's word? Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 through 24. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And I'm turning to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Be seated. Kelly and I are going to do a bit of a, a tag team. She'll be coming back up to share some of our experiences. The, uh, the miracle of this message is going to be how those two scriptures get tied together. And I entitled this Homesickness and Homecoming. And we, Kelly and I were just reading a book last week, and the author said, Displacement is the story of humanity. Displacement, being moved out of your place, being moved away, uh, broken relationships, um, is the story of humanity. And this account in Genesis 3 is the first displacement. It's our human ancestors, Adam and Eve, our representatives, being removed out of the garden, out, out of communion with God. And all of our displacements follow this one. And in the scriptures, there's lots of displacements. Cain, their son, was displaced and driven away even further than them. The patriarchs, Abraham, was displaced out of his home and wandered, lived in tents, as did his son Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph was displaced into Egypt, and the Israelites followed him there into the land of slavery. And when they did come back and finally had their own land and feel like, okay, now we're going we're gonna to get the home thing going, the homecoming, 
they were displaced again in exile. Scripture is really a story of displacements. Jesus Christ was a refugee, displaced and ran, ran for his life into Egypt. There's um, 250 million migrants in the world today, people who are not living in the country of their citizenship, of their home country. And I know I'm looking at some of those 250 million. I've lived about half my life as one of those 250 million uh, migrants, people who are displaced, who don't quite feel at home. There's um, about 10 million stateless people in the world, people with no citizenship at all. They, they don't have any country that they can say, that's my home country. I belong there. Um, there's about 65 million forcibly displaced people. These aren't people who've been pulled to another country because of something attractive there. These people have been forced out of their home country, either by persecution, because of who they are and what they believe, or because of war. And um, 20 million of those forcibly displaced people actually go as far as crossing an international border and going into another country, and we call them refugees. About half the refugees in the world today, 20 million people, half of them are children under 18. But you know, displacement, it's more insidious than that. It's not, it's not just about these people who have had to make a physical move. Um, you know, and you would know this, I mean, it's, even refugees have different refugee experiences, and migrants certainly have different migration experiences. And, and, and the experiences range from pleasure to death. You know this, well, in 2016, 4,000 people drowned in the Mediterranean Sea, migrating. And you might think, oh, they must have been mostly Syrians, but they were mostly Eritreans migrating out of Africa. But... Um, Displacement is insidious. Insidious means it, it comes inside. You can be a citizen and experience displacement. You can be lonely in your own land. You can have broken relationships in your own land. You can feel disconnected. We worked in uh, Kenya. Uh, with refugees, some mostly Somali refugees, but also some Ethiopians and Sudanese. And uh, we're there for about 15 years. And we came back to Canada in uh, 2011, and I was feeling very disconnected, even though I was coming home in a way. I was disconnected psychologically and socially. Um, I was burnt out. And you know, people put a positive spin on being burnt out. They, say, they sometimes call it compassion fatigue. I, li I like that when I first heard it. I thought, that's, that's, that's what I am. <laughs> I've just been way too compassionate. <laughs> I've given too much. And uh, God, in his gentle, gracious way, and I, and, and I really was, I was, I, I, I was depressed. I, I, was, I was very displaced. I was very disconnected. I... I, um, my, my stress threshold was very low. Um, it, 
was quite a time. And uh, so thanks for your daughter who got me through that, <laughs> walked with me through it. Um, but you know, God in his graciousness, gentleness, said, no, Paul, it's, it's, you know, it's not because you gave too much. It's, it's really because you didn't have anything to give. And a lot of your giving was really getting. And I, I, I've discovered that we are natural idolaters. We, it's so easy for us to replace our life-giving relationships, like Adam and Eve did, replacing their life-giving relationship with something else that we think is going to give us affirmation and significance and meaning and purpose in life. And we do it just naturally. And I've done it my whole life. I, I did it with sports. I did it with girls for a short time in my life. <laughs> um, I, I, I've, I've done it with academics. And some of these things are not bad things. You know, we do it with bad things, too. But we most often do it with good things. And, and I did it with ministry. I did it with working for God. I did it with um, sacrificing. I did it with meeting people's needs. And, um, and I was not delighting in the Lord. And you can only run like that for so long. And the God in his graciousness showed me, Paul, you're displaced. You're homesick. You're homesick. You weren't made for that. You were made for me. So displacement is the story of humanity. Reconciliation is the story of God. Reconciliation is the story of God. God has a plan for the displaced. And you see this throughout Scripture. You see it in the passage we just read. We'll come back to that. But I mentioned about their son Cain, driven away. But God was there providing for him. He always gave promises and provisions for the displaced, for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob, for Joseph for the Israelites in Egypt. He promised them, it's, it's not going to be forever. I'm going to have a plan. There's going to be a way out of this displacement. Even for the exile, after they'd spurned everything that God had done for them. And in a way, that's, that was what I had done. And, uh, but there was a way back from exile. God has a plan for the displaced. And in this Genesis 3 passage, you know, boy, it seems like God's sort of a severe leader, you know, out and stay out. You know, the sword going back and forth. Make no mistake, you're not getting back in here. But the context is provision. God clothing them. And even before this passage, um, but we didn't read this passage, but God promised a seed, a physical person, a physical descendant, who would come and defeat the enemy and be bruised in the process. God is, God is the, the subject. He's the doer. He's a the, he's the proactive reconciler. He doesn't wait for us to work our way back. He's the reconciler. Um, you know, religion, all the world's religions, it's all about us, what we have to do to work our way back home. 
But the gospel is what God does to reconcile us and to bring us back. In um, 1975, um, my sister died. I was nine, and she was 11. Actually, she died in 1974. In 1975, my family moved to Canada from England. And um, we were hurting because of her sudden death and, and now living in a new place. And a Christian family ran towards us, like, like God and waiting for his son to return. You know, the father of the prodigal son story ran. Um, and the son wanted to work, but he said, no way. And uh, that's, not, that's not how it works. And this family ran towards us as God's ambassadors of reconciliation and um, loved us in our displacement and became family for us. And we basically joined their family. And, uh, and they led us to Christ. We saw it. We saw it lived out. Um, God reconciling and, and bringing us in. Um, these past four years since I came back from Kenya, God's been reconciling me showing me that it's all about him, not about me, and, and, and wooing me, and um, helping me to delight in him. We saw it with refugees in Kenya, God's plan for them. So many times people would talk about how they have... We were, just, we were shocked when we went there. I mean, here we are. We're going to go work with refugees, you know, the, the most unfortunate people in the world, uh, you know, in the Dab refugee camp the largest refugee camp in the world. And, and um, you know, we were just expecting total dejection and sadness, and we found joy in the Sudanese people, the South Sudanese people who were there. We'd never seen such joy. And in a way, they were home. They had found God. They'd lost everything, and they'd found God. And they were at home in him, and he was at home in them. And, boy, they taught us so much. That this, what this life has to offer is, is a lie. And uh, they had life. I mean, there are joy examples. But uh, so many refugees talk about how they came to Christ, how they came to God in, in their refugee journey. And uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but a phenomenon that is happening in the last decade are Muslim people of the world. Um, you know, in the first 1,300 years of Islam, from the year 600 to the year 2000, there was only about 10 movements of Muslims becoming Christians. And, and the movement was described as over 1,000 people uh, being baptized in 20 years. Well, that's fairly modest, but it only happened 10 times in 1,300 years. But in the last 15 years, it's happened 70 times. And um, most, of the, most of those people groups were in migration, were in displacement. And it was the church who ran towards them and showed love and showed acceptance. And uh, when, when, when uh, Muslims are, are interviewed and said, what was it that brought you to Christ, to, to, to God through Christ? And number one answer, 
and, and there's, many of them have had dreams and visions. Many of them have had scriptures given to them. But the number one answer was the love of Christians, the body of Christ, the flesh of Christ, living out the ambassador work of, of God in, in, in meet, loving them. So uh, I'm going to call Kelly to come and just share what happened to us when we went back to um, Eastern Canada. I don't know. Some of you might not know Eastern Canada. <laughs> Many Canadians don't know it. Um, I always tell people I, I, I live in rural New Brunswick, and I say, no, you just have to say New Brunswick. <laughs> we know it's rural. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's our province. But the, the provinces in eastern Canada, uh, one is famous, Prince Edward Island. Uh, we're in the province next to that. Uh, it's, it, it's quite, we're, we're quite homogenous there, a lot of European background people, not very intercultural. But we've seen God do some wonderful things there recently. So we came back from 15 years in Kenya, and Paul was tired. And um, like many of us, I have struggled with fear all my life. And I think that's why the scriptures so often say, do not be afraid. So many of us struggle with fear, and I'm one of them. And uh, Paul was tired, and I was fearful and wondering how are we going to fit in here, what will our lives look like here. And uh, we began to pray and ask God what his plans were for us, and we started to have this growing vision in our head and, and, and a growing desire in our heart, and it involved two things. One was to, to work and walk beside the church in Canada. And I'll be honest, the church in Canada right now is, is weak, not many young people, and big, big, big buildings, but very few people inside. And, and I was thinking, I don't know if we can love this church here, but this was a growing vision that God was giving us. And the second thing was that we were to be welcoming refugees. And as Paul mentioned, our city is really small, and I didn't even know there were any refugees in our small city of St. John. And, uh, but just this vision kept coming that there was going to be God, we were going to be walking with God's people and we were going to be helping refugees. And some people who knew us told us, don't quit your jobs and you should go back to Kenya because there's no jobs in Canada. Don't quit your job. We won't take care of you if you, if you remain without a job here. But we really felt God was calling us to stay in St. John, New Brunswick and this vision that we couldn't stop seeing and uh, I, at first we thought, okay, I think it could work if Paul becomes a pastor of a church and, and I'll help him and I'll, I'll persuade, I'll twist people's arm to, to help newcomers. And <laughs> Paul applied for the job in the church and they didn't hire him. And I was thinking, what, how is, what is God doing? And um, so we, we Googled newcomers or refugees in St. John and the YMCA came up. And uh, I was thinking, YMCA? No. You know, it's, okay, maybe a good organization, but it's not a Christian organization anymore. And s other people spoke to us and told us, you should apply for this job, that, that uh, there's a job posting and you should apply for it. And my heart was pounding. And, um, I, but I was afraid because I had been a stay-at-home mom for many years. I homeschooled my kids for some years and, and uh, felt like I don't have any skills but I applied for the job, and I was hired. <laughs> 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 and, 
And the job was to welcome and receive government-assisted refugees, and there were refugees coming to St. John. Every year, 60 to 70 refugees were coming mostly from Muslim background countries, from Pakistan, Iraq, from Afghanistan, from Somalia. And I speak uh, Japanese badly, and I speak Somali a little less badly. (laughs) (laughs) And at that time, the YMCA had a retention rate of newcomers who came. The retention rate was about 40%. And I'll be honest, we were one of the most unwelcoming organizations in in uh, settlement, in settling newcomers. And part of the reason was that the YMCA was afraid to allow volunteers to be part of welcoming newcomers because they were afraid of churches and Christians proselytizing or trying to evangelize newcomers. And uh, as I joined staff at the YMCA, there was a number of people that God brought to the staff at that time And everyone had the same vision and dream. And as we began to share, we have this vision that we'll be reaching out to newcomers in St. John. And this was like, you too? Wow, this is weird. So a number of us began to pray together regularly. And we started to boldly step forward and invite the community to come and volunteer. And some of the, the biggest volunteer needs we had were for some refugees who came from very, very difficult backgrounds, refugees who arrived from severe trauma. And you can't, it isn't enough to give someone a home and a telephone and get the kids in school and start them in language classes. They need community. And our staff was exhausted. You, we would go to visit some of the people from refugee backgrounds' homes and they couldn't cope. They couldn't cook because they, all they could do was just cry at everything they had lost. And, and our staff was, you know, we have policies at the YMCA. We're not allowed to do this and that and the other thing, and it's good. It's part of what keeps our organization able to serve well. But we needed volunteers who could walk alongside people and just become family, like Paul had talked about, the family who ran towards them. So we began to advertise in the community. And guess who stepped up and said, we'll be the volunteers. It's God's people. And in, in a very short time, um, we connected with w- particularly one church that said, we'll, we'll be the volunteers for this family that's an absolute mess. And they, that family served day, were served day in and day out by a particular church. Well, then, as you know, last year, the government of Canada, we had an election, and one of the campaign promises that Justin Trudeau made was to bring 25,000 Syrian refugees to Canada in 2016. And and our our little um, city of St. John receives 1% of Canada's refugees. We're one of 23 settlement agencies at the YMCA. So we knew, okay, if it's 25,000 coming to Canada, we'll receive about 250. And at that time, we were a staff of about 15 in the settlement unit and a a few more beyond. And we thought, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this task? The only way we're going to be able to do this is through volunteers. So we thought, okay, we need to start inviting the community to come and help us to welcome the refugees who are going to be coming from Syria. So the very first meeting we had, we set out 40 chairs, and we thought we were being really bold. And we set out 40 chairs, quarter to seven, all 40 chairs were filled and the meeting didn't start till 7. So we realized we need a different room. There was about 120 people who showed up for that meeting. And as I looked around the room, 
Paul at that time had gotten a job with the Baptist Convention of Churches and was doing a job helping the churches. His work was to help the churches begin to have a heart for welcoming the stranger. And as I looked around the room, it was mostly the church who was who was there in that room. And uh, you know, we it's just been it's just been incredible. In uh, I'll I'll just give you some statistics here briefly. We had in the past, when I joined staff, we had about 20 to 30 volunteers per year at the YMCA. At the end of last year, we had raised 700 volunteers. And we didn't receive 250 Syrian refugees. We received 600 Syrian refugees who came over a period of about six months. And I went gray. <laughs> Actually, it's not a joke. I really did. <laughs> and... Uh, and I kept saying all through the past year, I kept saying, we can't do this. We can't do this. And I kept hearing Jesus say to me, I'm glad you can't because I can. And, and Paul, had, had the job he had taken was a job helping the churches to welcome the stranger. And across the provinces of New, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland, and Labrador, those those organizations had been in the habit of receiving one refugee family every year. And Paul began to have this vision and dream that God was putting on his heart to receive 100 families. And at first you think, that's crazy. Right now we only do one family per year. But again, Paul is saying, I can't do this. And God's saying, that's good that you can't because I can. And in the past year, Paul has been part of a he has a staff of one and a half and there's about 200 churches who have welcomed 100 refugee families in the past in just in this past year alone the applications were written under Canada's private sponsorship program it's been an incredible incredible year our retention rate has risen to something like 96 percent people stay in fact we've had what we call secondary migrations people arriving in in centers like Ottawa Montreal, Toronto, and they don't want to be there because they don't have family. They don't have community. And they hear from people who are living in St. John, New Brunswick, and they say, what, we've got this amazing welcome team that has comes and they're like family and they welcome us and they love us and serve us. And so then our Syrian newcomers come and say, my friend in Ottawa wants to come and, and he bought a ticket and he's arriving tomorrow. <laughs> and I mean, no. And... Uh, the, probably the most amazing thing has been that people who should not be together, Muslim people from Syria and Christians in Canada, are walking very closely side by side and getting to watch and see each other's lives like never before. And even on my own staff, I, I was given a position of um, supervisor. And again, I felt, I can't do this. I'm a stay-at-home mom. <laughs> I have no training, and God keeps telling me, that's right, I'm going to train you. And I, I lead a team now of 15 individuals from around the world, some of them Muslims, and a, a large part of my ministry has become discipling people who don't yet know Jesus. But as I walk together with them as their boss and their supervisor and, and remind them, some of my Muslim staff have come to me and said, I hate the Syrian people. They're driving me crazy. I hate them. I can't serve them anymore. I'm not going to go out there and serve them. And we sit down together and say, it's not about what, how we feel in our hearts. We're going to keep loving and serving them. We're going to be like the welcome mat, and we're going to let people walk over us into St. John, and we're going to continue to love them and serve them. And my Muslim 
staff have come to me and said to me, you are the one who taught us what it means to love and serve. We didn't know. Our own countries won't receive refugees. Most of my Muslim staff are from Saudi Arabia, and they are ashamed that their own government won't welcome and receive Syrian refugees while Canada has. And it's been an incredible privilege to walk with the staff on my team and to watch as together we get to walk out what are Christ's principles and I, and I um, enjoy the opportunity to pray for them as we walk together. And, and for Paul, um, he's not going gray quite as quickly, but <laughs> <laughs> it's been quite a journey for us both. And I'll add one of the things that we've both found in this past year of seeing God meet our our dream and vision. We had no idea how it could have happened this way, but God has step-by-step opened the doors. But one thing I'll say to those of you who might find yourself in a similar situation of you've heard God's voice and you're walking in obedience to him, don't be afraid because the enemy is going to attack you with lies. And this year has been a terrible year for us. Constantly we'll wake up in the morning and I'm literally hearing voices saying, you can't do this. Who are you? You're a failure. You're no good. And Paul and I have learned to open our mouths to each other and say, this is what I'm hearing. This is what is happening to me. I'm feeling so discouraged. And then we pray for each other and remind each other, that is not the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ does not speak to us like that and are able to encourage each other and walk through this year. So thank you for allowing us to share that testimony. You know, the early church, the the Hebrew scripture says, you know, practice hospitality. Be hospitable to strangers. And that, that word means, philos xenos, means to love strangers, hospitality, love of strangers. And, you know, we have the word xenophobia or xenophobia. It's a fear of strangers. But this is the opposite. It's the love of strangers. And the early church, that was, that was who they were. I think they were so aware that they themselves were strangers to God. They were either Jews who all of a sudden realized they were guilty of rejecting Messiah and condemning Messiah. Or they were Gentile sinners who were foreigners to the covenants. And both through Christ were brought front and center into the presence of God and God into them. And they were so aware that God was about reconciling. And they had been loved so much that they just they loved one another I love this diverse group that you have, and we're all here. What's our? I mean, as Kelly mentioned the phrase, you know, people who shouldn't be together who are together. You know, we look at this group. It's like, why are we all together? And it's it's because of Jesus Christ. He makes us one. We are His children. I would say Canada. You know, we yeah, Canada is a wonderful country. We bring in refugees, but we've we screen them very carefully. And then we allow them to be permanent residents. God went after us when we were enemies. And he made us his children. And the early church were so aware of that. And so they loved one another. And they loved the strangers, the other marginalized, lonely people. And the early church started hospices because people in the society, they were neglecting the dying. And they said, ah, the Spirit of God goes after people like that. And they, and they started hospices for the dying and hostels for vulnerable travelers and hospitals for the neglected sick. And all of these words come from this word hospitality, the love of strangers. 
And I just commend you, MCC, keep loving one another. It's what we have. We are God's family. We have been loved by God. I mean, when somebody loves you, you feel like a million dollars, especially if it's someone you admire who notices you. It's like, whoa. We have been loved by God. We were singing hymns about immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible. And this is the God who loves us. Yeah, it, it, was, just, it was just the Spirit of God living out through the church, his body. We have communion this morning. You know, when, when Adam and Eve were, were sent out of the garden, were displaced, and that sword was put there so that they couldn't get back to the tree of life. And obviously it would be death to try and get by that sword. God, in Jesus Christ, went to the other side of the sword. He joined us on the other side of the sword. And he led us back through it. He faced that death. the seed that was promised that would come, who would destroy the enemy, was bruised. And that's a a picture of his death. Hebrews 2.14. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, we have flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. We, we, we have a deity, we have a God who allowed himself to be displaced. He didn't wait for us to come to him. He came to us. He came and found us where we were at and he became human. He came on our side of the sword that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. His death Death is our ultimate fear because we fear ultimate displacement that will never be home. But the first death is his death. It says he was slain before the foundation of the world. And the first death that actually happened on this earth was this, was this animal that God killed in order to put skins to cover Adam and Eve's shame The first death that actually happened was a sign of his death. God provided Adam and Eve with flesh, with the flesh of an animal. Jesus Christ gives us his flesh, covers our shame with his life. And that's what we're here to do this morning, to remember that. That God came on our side of the sword and gives us his flesh. Adam and Eve, it stood out to me in the scripture, it says, and he clothed them. You know, he didn't fling the clothes at them and say, hey, put those on. They allowed God to clothe them. Here as we take communion, we're allowing God once again to clothe us in Jesus Christ, to give us his life. Adam and Eve, their one act of disobedient selfishness resulted in 
the displacement of us all. But Jesus' act, his historical act on the cross, his death and his resurrection, his act of obedient love results in the reconciliation of us all. Adam and Eve got clothed and then barred from the tree of life. Jesus got stripped and was bound to a tree, a tree of death. And just two last thoughts. Ephesians 1 says that the cost of us being brought back home to God so that we can have fellowship with God again. It says we were redeemed by the blood of his son. And I hope I never neglect that relationship again and, 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 and replace it with other things. Remember the cost. And Ephesians 2 then says that God had a purpose of creating one new humanity out of all of the displaced people who are very different from one another. God had a plan to create one new man, one new humanity in himself. And then Ephesians 2 says, In Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I'd like you to remember that. If you're ever tempted to break fellowship with one another, remember what it costs for that fellowship. Guard that fellowship. Pursue one another. It starts here. And it spills out into to the lonely of your neighborhood and uh, the marginalized in your neighborhood. But, but remember what it costs for us to be a family. And um, thank you for letting us share. And it's, we're, it's our joy to, to now sit with you and, uh, and let God clothe us.